All right, once again, thanks for joining us as we uh, study the book of Numbers. We're in Numbers chapter 19, Numbers 19 this week. And uh, we're going to study a topic called, I'm going to call it clean conscience. We started last week uh, in our last lesson looking at clean and unclean and how that impacts and what God has said about what is clean, what is not clean. And we're going to see a little bit of how that impacts the, the passage this week as we study 19. I was reading because of that. I was just reading some articles on cleanliness and uh, kids helping clean and moms writing in their stories about the kids helping clean and how that all impacted. And a couple of, a couple of really interesting ones came out. One said, my three-year-old daughter was in the bathroom washing her clothes for me in the toilet. Then my daughter, another one said, wanted to help clean the windows. So she walked up to the window, she licked it, and then wiped it with a paper towel. I'm sure some of you may have been there at some point. One lady wrote, my daughter cleaned the entire bathroom with her father's cologne because she thought her father's cologne smelled much better than the bathroom did. Probably did, but it was probably a little overwhelming. Uh, one, one dad wrote, I discovered my son had cleaned the floors, uh, the wood floors with lemon pledge. I discovered that by walking in one day in my socks and I slipped on the floor and cracked my head on the ground. Uh, another, another parent wrote, every time my kids clean their room, all they do is just shove everything under the beds or shove it all in the closet. And I thought the funniest one was uh, this, this lady wrote at the end, she said, I'm, I'm not going not gonna to lie, my kids don't even pretend to help cleaning. But after reading this article, perhaps it's for the better. And I was like, that's, that was a really great comment. You know, when we look at the kids cleaning, we, we can have our perspectives on it. But even as adults, we tend to have unique strategies to cleaning. Think about it. We will often redefine cleanliness. Are those jeans really dirty? How many dust bunnies do I really need to, to see in order to actually go vacuum? Can I wear those clothes for another day? And sometimes we'll redefine what we see is clean. And everybody may have these different standards of how clean something really is. We'll, we'll look and we'll say, if we're able to define the acceptable level of dirt, then maybe we can combat this seemingly insurmountable and unmanageable task. So we'll just redefine it. Or sometimes as adults, we will often attempt to limit our sources of contamination. We will uh, say, like Nathaniel Hawthorne said it last week, I'm only going to use one dish, or I'm only going to let my kids play with one toy at a time, then we have to clean it, and then we have to put it away. Uh, we're going to make everybody take off their shoes when they come into the house. We have all these different strategies to try and help us limit and make that job seemingly achievable. And we can look at that, but we all know, even if you do all those things, you still end up having to clean. There's still dirt that shows up. It is inevitable. It is going to happen. But I think we do that sometimes when we walk into our spiritual life as well. When we look at the spiritual dirt in our lives, how do we get around it? Well, in order to maybe not feel guilty or to deal with it, I will redefine what the nature of sin is. I'll try to redefine what it, what it looks like. Sin is not, and we have to remember this, it's not me coming up with a set of rules or a set of codes or someone else or a religious organization giving you a list of do's and don'ts. Sin is when I do not have a heart that is in line with the Lord. When I violate and I break, I miss the mark of His standards and I fall short of His glory and I am not holy like God wants me to and I find myself in uncleanliness. I cannot redefine sin in order to just live the way and do what I want to do. We'll even try at times to isolate the potential sources of contamination. We'll find ourselves pulling away from everything. But we have to remember the solution is not to hide ourselves away from the world. 
We are to live in the world, but not to be contaminated by it. We must remember, because sin does not just come from without. James reminds us that sin comes from within. We have that battle internally as well. So we can isolate ourselves and say, we're never going to do anything outside of you know, this holy little sanctuary, but we're still going to struggle with sin because of the nature of sin, because of our sin nature. And so we cannot just look and say, well, I'm just going to redefine or I'm going to shift or I'm going to try and isolate and that'll work. We have to remember that we bear the seeds of every potential. And this scares me. Every potential sin, the seedbed is in my heart. It is wanting to fester in my spiritual dirtiness and wanting to grow. And I need to combat that. And how do I combat the sins that I battle with, the sins that I struggle with? Israel struggled with that as well. They're facing an inevitable time of dirtiness. And what we need and what the Jews needed, they needed a regular, comprehensive, deep cleansing. They needed something to take care of the dirt, to get rid of the dinginess, the filth that was there. Now remember, as we talked last time, God defines what is clean and what is unclean. Not us. We cannot redefine it. The Jews could not redefine that. We had to understand that God does that. And because God establishes what is clean and what is unclean, and God establishes what is holy, God also established the purification rites and the sacrifices that were necessary for an individual to have their spiritual dirt cleansed, to have it purified, to have it removed or eradicated. Numbers 19 is going to flow out not just simply of a fear of contamination. Sometimes we look at all the laws of, of the, the Old Testament and say, well, they were just there to keep them uh, physically clean and keep them from getting sick with their food. Those, those things happened. But there was also a relational, a rational relationship that they wanted with God. They wanted their fellowship restored. They wanted to know that spiritually they could approach God but they could not in their state of uncleanliness. They needed to be clean in order to approach a holy God. So Numbers 19 is going to flow out of a concern that the Jews are going to naturally have at this time in their life. Remember, death made the Jews ceremonially or ritually unclean. Corpse contamination, the the death of a human body, was considered such an unpowerful impurity, it had to be remedied. They looked and they, they, they understood if they came in proximity in some cases, if they would touch an un, un, uh, a dead individual, if they would be in the tent and someone died and anybody who goes into that tent during the period of uncleanliness, they would become unclean. If they would touch the bones of a human, if they would touch a, a grave, even in this passage we'll see if there was a lidless vessel, one of your containers with your flower was in there, it was open and someone died in your tent, that container was considered then unclean and had to be purified. Each and every, uh, even they had to go remember, Numbers 5 tells us this and Leviticus 5 as well, that when someone was unclean because of death, they had to go outside of the camp. They were removed from that situation. So we see that in the Jewish perspective, according to the laws that God has given, they would be ceremonially, ritually unclean because of that. And uncleanliness, as we learned last time, needs purification for an individual to live in that normal state of life of cleanliness. So in order for them to approach and worship God, they had to be clean. The individual could not approach the sanctuary, could not go toward God's holiness 
with their decontamination. They needed to go outside. And and this purification that we're going to see here actually takes outside the place of the camp because it was so ritually impure. In order to have a sustained, healthy relationship or fellowship with God, the people had to be purified. They had to go through these rites that God had established for them. They needed to be decontaminated. Because death is the final consequence of sin. We know that. James says, when sin is conceived, it brings forth death. We talk about death and sin all the time. That the wages, the payment of sin is death. There is the physical death that we will uh, all experience. Save the rapture, which we're praying comes soon. Or... That's, and, and as well, the spiritual death for those who are living in sin and are not uh, reconciled with God through salvation. There's a spiritual separation. So death and sin go hand in hand throughout the word of God. Numbers 19 is surrounded by death. It's all about death. It's like, why would we, why would we talk about this much about death and how to deal with death, God? What is happening? But remember the situation that has occurred. Just previously, you have the rebellion of Korah. What happened at the end? 15,000 people in your camp are dead. They're gone. Now we also have the reminder that everybody in the camp is trying to figure out, if I'm unclean because of all of, these, all of this death around me, how can I approach to do what Numbers uh, 18 tells me to do? To bring tithes and offerings to support the priests. I'm unclean. How do I get myself from the unclean state to the clean state with the power of this, this impurity with death? And so God is going to establish here in Numbers 19 how the individual, how the Jew will become ritually pure and clean again. And remember, there's an entire generation that is already on their deathbed. They are going to continue to die off. They're not able to go into the promised land. So for the Jews living at this time, death is everywhere. While they are wandering in the wilderness, it is there. So how do they become clean in the process of all of their uncleanliness and the contamination that's all around them? So God helps them and graciously provides them with these dynamics because death is all around. So how can they know that they can approach God without fear of death? That was what they were afraid of at the end of the situation with Korah. Now we can't even come near the tabernacle or we will die. How do they know they can move in that direction? What, is, what can they do? How can they be cleansed from potentially daily contamination of sin and death? What do they need to go through? How can they have that assurance? God in his grace provides the purification ritual of the red heifer because death is around and sin is pervasive. If you look in verse 9, it talks about that the, for the children of Israel, this is going to be a water of separation, or the word is impurity, because it is a purification for sin, for this uncleanness that is going to be present in their life. So before we dive in a little bit more in the passage, let me just quickly say about this passage on what is called the red heifer. You're going to see this term. It, the symbolism in this passage, it's rich. It is, it is there. It parallels and it points to Christ in so many ways and to believers as well. It is, it is theologically just loaded with, with perspectives on Christ as well. But let me also say this. 
we need to be careful that as we make those parallels and those points, that we're not doing them out of some fancy allegory or we're just making up a story or, ooh, this seems really neat, but that we couch it in Scripture, that we say, what does the Word of God say as well? Do we see these parallels evidenced through the Word of God and not some astounding prophecies? In fact, if you go to, if you go to the Internet and you look at... Um, the Google the red heifer. One of the first things a lot you're going to see is all about prophecies. Well, let me just quickly say this. When we look at the prophecies, and especially in regard to the red heifer of what is taught, there's no prophecies in the word of God regarding that. A lot of those come out of groups that already, they don't even, these groups are looking and saying, hey, this red heifer is going to come and it's going to be slain by the Messiah. But when they say that, they're not talking about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They're talking about the Messiah yet to come. They missed the first one, and they don't believe that Christ is the Messiah. They're looking for, a, for another Messiah. So they've got a lot of things backwards. And let me say it this way. If you want to know about the end times, you want to know about what's going to be happening in the world according to the Word of God, tune in over the next weeks to, to pastor series on the end times in the latter days. <coughs> Excuse me. And find out what the Bible says about those end times, about the prophecies. Enough of that. Let's move on to the text. Where, let's, let's just ask some questions because there's a lot that goes on here. Let's just ask some questions. <coughs> but while we're doing that, let's look and see also how, we point, how this points to Christ or how this parallels with Christ as we go through. So where, where did this ritual take place? We see that in verse number three. It says that they're supposed to... Uh, the Eliezer is going to take this cow and going to bring her without the camp. So we know that it's going to take place without the camp. Verse 9 says that they're supposed to leave the ashes of the red heifer, we'll explain that in a moment, outside the camp in a clean place. So, I mean, it's a pretty simple one. This one makes sense if you ask me, you think about it. Why would the purification need to take place outside the camp? Because when somebody is defiled inside the camp by death, where do they need to go? outside camp. So where are they going to need to be purified in order to be able to enter back into camp and enter back toward the tabernacle and toward worshiping God? They're going to have to do that outside of camp. So God establishes that this sacrifice, and that's unique. You're going to see a couple of unique things here. The red heifer is the only sacrifice that took place outside, not on the altar, not in the tabernacle. It took place outside of camp for this purpose of purification. And so it's done outside. You can see that. And that makes sense with the places of death, where they're going to go. They're going to be outside of camp. What happens during this ritual? Now, it's not what is happening. It's not still occurring. But what happened during this time with the ritual? There's two parts to what happens. There's first the part that the priest oversaw. You're going to see that in verses 1 through 10. And then the next part is going to be the ritual that is going to be carried out by the people. So there's going to be a part that the priests oversee, and then there's going to be a responsibility of the people to, by faith, go through this ritual. So let's look first at what the priests oversaw in verses 1 to 10. The people are to bring the, a red heifer, a red cow, to the priests. So we see that verse 1. Uh, this is the ordinance which the Lord spake, commanding, speak unto the children, that they bring a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon a yoke has never come. So this, this cow is supposed to not have spots, just like all the sacrifices. No spots, no blemishes, and having never had the yoke, or it hasn't done a day of work in its life. 
So it is a specific type of cow that is supposed to be there. The word red here does not mean that every hair. That, that became a Jewish tradition where they say that if two hairs were a different color, that it was not qualified. That became a Jewish tradition later on. The word is just reddish in color, that it was, had that, that perspective. The priest Eliezer was supposed to take that cow, and then there was a ritual to be taken place. Let's, let's read that ritual. Let's uh, pick up in verse number three. And you shall give her, the cow, unto Eliezer, the priest, that he may bring forth her without the camp, and one shall slay her before his face. And Eliezer the priest shall take her blood with his finger and sprinkle his blood, her blood directly before the tabernacle or toward the tabernacle is the idea of the congregation seven times. And one shall burn the heifer in his sight, her skin, her flesh, and her blood, which is really important because usually the blood was taken for uh, the other dynamics, the blood is going to be left in into this sacrifice because remember, it is the blood that cleanses from sin. This is going to be a ritual that is going to help cleanse from sin. So the blood is left in for efficacy, for effectiveness in the forgiveness of sins. And her blood and her dung are all the entrails and he shall burn it. And the priest shall take the cedar wood and the hyssop and the scarlet, scarlet wool and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. All of these items, the hyssop is often used with death rituals. The hyssop was uh, used, remember, even in the covering uh, back in Egypt, they would use the hyssop to go over the doorpost. But the cedar wood, the scarlet uh, wool, they're all reddish in color. They're all reminding of the blood, the red heifer. It's all reminding, pointing back to, to the, the blood that is there and cast it in the midst of the burning of the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and he shall bathe in uh, his flesh in the water. And afterwards he shall come into the camp and the priest shall be unclean until the evening. And he that burneth her shall wash his clothes as well in the water and bathe uh, his flesh in the water and shall be unclean until evening. And a man that is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and lay them up without the camp in a clean place and it shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for a water of separation or a water of their impurity. It is a purification for sin. And he that gathereth the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And it shall be unto the children of Israel and unto the stranger that sojourns among them for a statute forever. So we see the whole process here of these individuals, the priests, those others going out and basically taking the heifer, taking the redwood, taking the scarlet and, and then the hyssop and burning it to ashes, collecting all of those ashes, placed in a clean vessel, placed outside of the camp. And the priests would oversee that to ensure that everyone and everything that took part was clean during that time. But note, and we'll come back to this, everybody who took part in that became unclean. Now, as we go through the passage, the ritual that's overseen by the priest, they, uh, there it is, I said, they all become unclean in that. They needed to bathe, they needed to wash their clothes, and they needed to wait until evening time. It wasn't a long period of uncleanness, and it wasn't even a very extensive type of purification. They just needed to take a bath after dealing with all the soot and the ashes and the, the death that occurred there with the animal, and they needed to wash their clothes, and they were able to come back later on. 
It's interesting that as you, you see this, and you see this with most of the sacrifices, that a sacrifice was to be without spot or blemish. And aren't we reminded of that with Jesus Christ? Where even in First Peter it says that, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot, we see that he is a perfect sacrifice. Just like this heifer was to be a perfect sacrifice, without spot, without blemish, Jesus Christ, the same, an individual without spot, without blemish, without sin, his preciousness, his, his perfectness, allowed him to be that wonderful sacrifice for us. Now, what happened during this ritual? The ritual was to be carried out then by the people. The priests oversaw it, but then as you get to verse 17, you're going to see that the, the people had to do this. Now, this makes sense because the priests were to avoid corpse contamination. They were not supposed to get close to it. And I gave you the references there in Leviticus. This purification ritual then was to be administered not by the priests to the people, but by people to people. By people in the congregation coming alongside each other, by a lay person. A clean person is to help an unclean person. And we talked about that last time, where someone who is now clean ritually is going to help their friend or help somebody in the, the, the tribe or the nation become clean because of their uh, contamination with a dead body. The clean individual is to take the ashes with the living or the idea is moving water. They weren't supposed to go to a pond and just scoop up. They were supposed to find running water that was going and take that water and some of the ash and mix them together. Verse 17, it talks about, for the unclean person, uh, they shall, and for the unclean person, they shall take of the ashes of the burnt heifer of purification of sin and running water, put it into a vessel. And the clean person should then take the hyssop, dip it in the water, and sprinkler. The word sprinkler is literally to like throw it upon them, to, to take those, those branches and, and to fling it upon them. Uh, and all the vessels that may have been in the, that they were touched, and upon the person that were there, and upon anyone that's touched a bone or slain, and it's going to talk about what made the people unclean. We'll come back to that in a second. But what they're supposed to do is take that hyssop after the water and the ash has been mixed together, just a little bit of the ash, some of the water, and then s- sprinkle that on them. And they were, they were to do that, and it's a picture of the, the idea of the painting or the, the flicking on them, uh, the picture of the blood going upon them, of covering and cleansing them. And this was to happen on the third day of their uncleanliness and the seventh day, because you'll see in the passage that a person who is contaminated by death is unclean for seven days. So this had to take place two different times, on the third and the seventh day of the uncleanliness. But notice on the seventh day, look at, look at who has to then take the bath, who has to clean. Uh, down in verse uh, 19, and the clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean the third day and the seventh day. And on the seventh day, he, it's speaking back about the clean person here, shall purify himself and wash his clothes and bathe himself in the water and shall be clean at evening. So that individual who was clean and is helping their unclean friend now becomes unclean ceremonially. And they need to take the bath, wash the clothes that is there. And so verse 21 reminds us and shows us why that theologically from from God, he says, 
It shall be a perpetual statute unto him that he that sprinkles the water of separation shall wash his clothes, and he that touches the water of separation shall be unclean until evening. So there was a dynamic of this water and the ash that was mixed together when it did that made that individual who was clean unclean. So God says they also have to go through a purification rite that, that took place there. So now the clean friend has to wash, bathe, wash his clothes, because if they were to just do this to a friend, sprinkle him down, and then go back to camp, they would be considered ceremonially unclean. So God says, you need to take care of that as well. And it really challenged me to start thinking about the importance of the body of believers. In that case, the tribe members, the, the groups, the, the nation of Israel. In the process of sanctification and growth, in helping somebody who is battling with sin or uncleanliness, and helping them to come. When we look at this passage, you needed, to, you needed a friend who was going to be willing to bear this burden with you of your uncleanness. That they were going to be willing to go with you and become ceremonially unclean in order for you to become clean. That they were going to take that upon them. These friends, they're going to help in times of death. They, it, wasn't, it wasn't on their timetable. It wasn't like, hey, we'll get to it later. This, when it happened, it happened. And they were willing to go and to be inconvenienced and to, to help their friend. They, they saw the importance of not just the physical help. Okay, we'll, we'll help around, maybe bring them some food or something. But they saw the spiritual cleanliness as something that was important. And you think about what they would have to go through. The time. You're going to give up a day of work. You're going to, to, to go out with your friend, in some cases two days, on the third and the seventh day, you're going to be unclean. You're going to have to go with them. You're going to send time away from family. You're not going to be able to go worship on that day. Maybe bring a sacrifice that maybe you intended to bring. But because of your friend's uncleanness, you see that as important to help them become clean again. And it was about the, the body coming together. Remember, it's not the priests who are administering this. This is the lay folk. This is everybody to their friends, to their neighbors, loving their neighbors in order to help them. And they would shoulder that burden of sanctification. Only a clean individual was able to administer this ritual. And in order for the Red's heifer cleansing to be effective, everyone involved had to be cleaned. And the New Testament picks up on that with the cleanliness of Christ. That as he would come, uh, had a double slide there. Everyone who comes uh, in contact with this ritual is going to be uh, clean. Or, excuse me, let me go back there. Uh, everyone, the, the New Testament picks up on this idea with the New Testament of the cleanliness of Christ. And we see that throughout the New Testament where he who was without sin, we remember that he is the one who. Uh, though all of the temptations were there, he went through and yet without sin. We see it throughout the New Testament that Christ was clean. He was continually clean. He was not unclean. He was not impure. The process of this cleansing, as we've talked about, rendered everyone involved unclean. That they took upon themselves the willingness to be unclean for the sake of other people to be clean. And it's designed to cleanse, to become defiled until they go through this process of cleansing. The cleansing process involves the absorption of impurity 
from the, the defiled here. Second Corinthians reminds us of this with Christ. He who knew no sin became sin, that you might become the righteousness of God in him. He took upon us our impurities so that we could have the, the purity, the cleanliness from Christ. First Peter says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we be dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. He took his, our sin upon him. He was willing to become unclean, to take our uncleanliness so that we could be clean, so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be healed. What a beautiful picture of what happens in the process of this ritual with the red heifer of Jesus Christ, that he would take our sins upon us in order that we might be healed. He who was without sin was rendered vulnerable to sin because he offered himself freely as a substitute for you, for me, bearing our sins that we or you might become clean. It points to Christ. It parallels with him of what he did and the beautiful substitution and the willingness to take upon themselves, their friends' uncleanness, so that their friend could become clean. The price of cleansing, it's costly. It's costly. Anyone who came in contact with this individual is rendered unclean. So therefore, the, the clean friend who goes with the unclean contaminated friend was then not able to go worship. They had to uh, have that dealt with because sin separates us from God. There was time spent away from work, from family, as I mentioned. There was that extra work that was involved for the individual. It talks about it in right around verse 12 or 13 in the, in the passage that when the tent is contaminated, that what they were supposed to go in and they're supposed to, to, to clean even around the tent. So they had to bring some of the water back. The unclean friend would do that for the, for, or the clean friend, excuse me, would do that for the unclean friend. Go back to the tent and cleanse and purify the vessels in the tent and around the tent. And they would, they would do that, even though it was going to take them extra work. But they saw the importance of helping a believer, helping a friend in their growth process, being able to come back to that cleanliness. Even for Christ, is it not costly? When he took our sin upon him, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken or abandoned, turned your back upon me? Why? Because sin is heinous to God. And as he bore our sins, there was a turning by the Father that was costly to our Savior. The price of cleansing is costly. It cost Christ his life. It cost him that separation time from the Father. It was heavy upon him. Now, why is all of this done? In the passage, we've already alluded to it a number of times. Verse number nine, it is done because of the sin, because of the impurity that is brought from death. We know that it is a, it is a purification for sin. This water became this cleansing agent for the purification of the unclean, uh, uncleanliness and the sin that was involved in all of us. But let's ask it this way, because the passage does it. What if it was not done? What happens if we don't go through this process? There would be no way for the unclean to become clean. They would be living in this perpetual state 
of uncleanliness. So failure to follow through on one's cleansing, it's going to, one, defile the tabernacle of the Lord. Look in verse 13. It says, uh, whoever touches the dead body of any man that is dead and purifies not himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord because now as you approach that which is holy, you're bringing defilement toward the tabernacle. So God is saying, you don't even approach, you don't come near until you are purified of your uncleanliness. Because the water of separation was not sprinkled upon him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness will be continually yet upon him. It doesn't pass after a few days. He says, until this individual goes through this purification rite, they are perpetually unclean. And their uncleanliness is going to contaminate others. It's going to everything. Remember, we talked unclean, uncleanliness is contagious. Anything that individual is touching, what they come around would permeate. Verse 13, it says, for that person who doesn't do it, they shall be cut off from Israel that they will be put out, that they will be, have to be separated and taken away. For the one who will not deal with their sin and their uncleanliness, there is a cutting off. There is a separation that is to take place. The person will live in that perpetual uncleanness. It says it again down in verse 20. You get some of the reiteration again, which says, but the man that shall be unclean and shall not purify himself, that soul shall be cut off from, the, from among the congregation because he defiles the sanctuary of the Lord the water of separation has not been sprinkled upon him. He is unclean. So what happens? Why is this all done? Because if, if, if you are not purified, if you do not go through this process, you are going to infiltrate uncleanliness into the camp. You are going to taint, potentially taint the tabernacle of God. You are going to cause strife in the body and uh, problems and struggles there. And eventually you're going to be cut off. So God in his grace says, hey, you need to do this. And I'm providing this for you. Don't rebel against my way, but accept my ways of purification. Follow through with them and you will be clean. The ritual occurred for the holiness of the tabernacle and of God's people. God did it in order to keep them. Verse 22, it says that whatsoever the unclean person touches shall be unclean. And the soul that touches it shall be unclean until evening. So he's saying that the, the uncleanliness of someone who is contaminated by death is contagious to the group, to the tribe, to the nation. And so God is saying, take care of this. Deal with it. For those who are unclean, remember, cannot be holy. They must first be clean before they can be holy. They must be pull, purified and made clean in order to be made holy. Now, who is to take part in this? The passage answers the who's. The, this ritual deals with those who are ceremonially unclean because of death. Though through time, this ritual did uh, also was also used for other dynamics of just ritual uncleanness, but it's specifically in chapter 19, we're dealing with uncleanness from death. So who is to take part? He that touches, an un, uh, verse 11, he that touches the dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days. But are you like, like most of us, you know, we hear this, here's the mandate. And then we're like, well, what about this? Or what about, so God understands that there's going to be some questions, you know, how does this all work? So he, he lays out in verses 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, he lays out all of that. He, he lays out, I'm sorry, uh, there we go. 
He lays out whoever touches a corpse. Verse 13, someone dies in your tent. Verses 14 and 15, anyone who comes into the tent, any vessels that are in that are not covered, they're all unclean. Someone who touches it in the middle of battle, they're unclean. If they die by the sword, you're unclean. If you touch the bone of a corpse at any time, even later on, if you're moving the bones, you become ritually unclean. One who has been killed, verse 16, it talks about, um, there's two different, where it talks about a dead body uh, there, one that is slain by the sword in open fields or a dead body or the bone of a man or a grave uh, shall be unclean. It talks about there one who is killed or one who dies by natural causes. He says, if you touch them, you are ritually unclean. If you go to a grave and you touch the grave and you're at the grave, you are unclean. So God just, God answers all the potential what ifs and says, here they all are. And I'm sure there were still others that later on, because they weren't all there, that's why you have the, like the Mishnah and the Talmuds later on, where the priests and the, the rabbis would all uh, try and discuss, is this, isn't this, is this, isn't this. And so they, uh, they would go through and try and answer even more of those what-if questions. Really, it's quite straightforward. Touch a dead body, you need to be purified in order to be cleansed. And God does that. God provided this way of reconciliation with him through the purification of the red heifer. And he did that for those individuals. Now, when is it supposed to take place? You'll notice in verse 10 and in verse 21 that this was a perpetual statute, that it was supposed to be there always. And notice in verse 10, it's for the children of Israel and for that stranger who is in the land. It could be done and used at any time. They were available to any who were following God's ways. That's what that word stranger means. Remember, not a natural born Jew, but somebody who is now following the ways of Judaism and following after the law or for the children of Israel. So it could take place at any time. And so what we come to is this idea that a death in the past continues to affect the cleansing later. Now, this was different than all the other sacrifices that occurred. The other Old Testament sacrifices were immediate. When the sacrifice was done and the blood was placed upon the altar, it was done. It was dealt with at that moment. This one is different because the sacrifice is going to occur and later on when the ashes are mixed with the water, it still has an effective power of cleansing. So it's a sacrifice that took place one time and then later on still has that cleansing power. So a death in the past can affect cleansing later on. And we see that with Jesus Christ, don't we? Remember that his sacrifice was, as Hebrews says, a once for all sacrifice. Down at the end of verse 27 there, he died once for all when he offered himself. Christ is not continually dying. He does not need to be re-sacrificed. He was sacrificed. So Christ offered once. The effectiveness is not tied to just only at the moments when Christ, but we can now, living 2,000 years after Christ, accept Christ as our Savior, and the efficacy or the effectiveness of his death then is good upon us now. We don't have to have Christ re-sacrificed right now for our sins to be forgiven. Christ's sacrifice did not need to be repeated. It was once and for all. We see that, Hebrews 9, not through the blood of bulls or goats and calves, not claves, uh, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once, having obtained eternal redemption for us. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away all sins. How? By the sacrifice of himself one time. Hebrews 10.10, by this we will have been sanctified. How? Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ 
once for all. A death in the past, just like if, it, if a cow can do it, if a cow can have an effective uh, death later on, how much more can the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the perfect and holy Lamb, have effectiveness later on? Once for all sacrifice, even later on. So the sacrifice puts away all sins later and before for his people. What has taken place through Jesus Christ? A death in the past affects cleansing later. So there was a contaminating, when we look at the passage, there was a contaminating effect of death that required cleansing. Thus, this elaborate ritual was established for the cleansing of those who had been contaminated, defiled, and made unclean. So God provided a gracious way for them to be healed. This process could render one ceremonially clean, cleansed from impurity, but it's important to note that it could not cleanse the conscience. How do we know that? Hebrews in the New Testament helps us to understand that. It's, it's unlike any other parallel. The other ones parallel Christ. The, the, the red heifer points to something greater with Christ. You could have a cleansing from your sins, but Christ's work does something far greater. Would you go with me to Hebrews chapter 9? In Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to see, and, and we've been in Hebrews a bunch, but I just want to read this to you. We, we often quote part of it, but, but look what it says here. For if the blood of bulls and of goats, and notice the next part, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, that's a direct reference back to Numbers 19, the cleansing, the knowing that they can be purified. If those can sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, if they can clean the individual on the flesh, make them ritually, ceremonially clean so that they can enter back into society, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It is through the death of Christ that my conscience can be cleared of the guilt of sin. Yes, his, his death covers my sins. It atones for, it pays for them. But we still battle with that conscience. Am I really forgiven? Can, it, can God really forgive? Absolutely. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, he, we can have a clean conscience knowing that the sins that I committed this week, when I go to God and ask for cleansing, for repentance, for forgiveness of my sins, it is through Jesus Christ that my sins are cleansed and my conscience is cleaned. The ashes of a heifer could not do that. They could be ceremonially clean, but it did not take care of the spiritual struggles that were there in their lives. Christ does that. Christ provides cleansing. We see it throughout the, 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 this passage, throughout portions of the Bible. I'd encourage you to go read Psalm 51 after going through this study on Numbers 19. Go read and listen to what David says, where he says, Create in me a clean heart. He asks for cleansing after his sin. He begs for God to purge him with hyssop. 
to wash him so that he shall be white as snow. He asks that the, the cleansing take place and he comes to the end and he starts talking about all those other sacrifices can do nothing, but this is what you wanted, a clean, a contrite heart. You'll see portions of Numbers 19 all through David. But I'd also encourage you to think about this passage. As we wrap it up today, as we think about what does the heifer picture, what does it show for us? It reminds me that despite all of my sinfulness, despite my shortcomings and failures and the guilt that I battle with, that Christ, even after salvation, he still cleanses me from sin. That if I confess my sins, I take care of them. I ask God to purify me, to cleanse me. If I confess my sins, my faithful and righteous and just God will cleanse me from my unrighteousness. He will scrub it away. He will make me clean. He will restore that fellowship that the Jews longed for, that they wanted, but because of their uncleanness, they needed purified. That me and my situation here, and and for many of you, when we struggle with our uncleanness, with our sin, we battle. Then we ask God to forgive us. And then we beat ourselves up. Did he really cleanse me? Did he really forgive me? Hebrews 9 says, yes, he did. 1 John says, yes, he did. It is a beautiful picture pointing forward the red heifer to the forgiveness, the cleansing, the cleansing of not my, just my sin, but my conscience as well of what Christ does for me. That he will cleanse us. Do not go away this week and say, I'm too far gone. Do not go away and say, I've fallen again. God doesn't want to hear. God doesn't want to cleanse. The red heifer was available at any time for anyone in any way. Just like Christ's forgiveness is available at any time for anyone. If you need to be saved, you come, you repent, you ask Christ to forgive you of your sins. For those who may be saved, you're trusting in him, but you've fallen. Ask him to forgive you, to cleanse you, to create that clean heart within you because he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's spend some time this week repenting of our sins and trusting in God's cleansing and washing of, the, of our hearts, washing of our lives through the power of his word. God, I thank you for the picture of the, the, the red heifer. Lord, I thank you for the way that it points to what Christ has done for us. I thank you for the sacrifice. I thank you for the atoning blood, the cleansing blood, the covering of that blood of my sins. And Lord, I thank you so much for the cleansing of sins even after I have been saved. For the forgiveness that you grant to me in my fallen sinfulness to know that you still are faithful and just to forgive me of that and to cleanse me from it. Lord, thank you for your glory. Thank you for your holiness and your majesty. And Lord, help us as we fall short of that to work at restoring our fellowship with you and with one another. Thank you for this passage. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a great day.